Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Paul Evans, Associate Professor at the School of Education, the University of New South Wales. Dr. Evans, thank you for coming on Lost in Citations. Thank you, Jonathan. It's great to be with you today. We have a really interesting paper. It's a little bit outside of some of the citations and interviews that I've done in the past, but this is a little bit close to my heart because I don't know if people know, but I used to be a musician. Uh, my identity used to be an, a musician. <laughs> so, um, and I think there are a lot of metaphors that can be drawn between music and language learning, of course. But uh, the article that we're going to be talking about today is Psychology of Music Identity and Practice, the Motivational Benefits of a Long-Term Musical Identity. Um, before we get into the paper, uh, I always like to uh, get to know the guest a bit. Um, I'd like to sort of hand over the floor to you. Would you mind giving some of your background and, and uh, leading us up to, uh, to the time of when you started planning this paper? Yeah, sure. Um... Well, uh, I guess the most, yeah, I, I started out as, when, when I was a kid, I, I played music. That probably is the most relevant detail to, to background this paper, I guess. Uh, like a lot of kids who start learning music, I started when I was sort of, I don't know, five or six, playing mm -hmm. the piano. Uh, and then um, through, uh, I became really quite involved in music in high school. I would do uh, all sorts of different sort of ensemble activities, went to a Catholic school. So there was always music going on there for, for different events. Mm. And, uh, and so really music, I was pretty identified, I guess. I don't know that I identify as a person very much in, in different ways, but I guess in high school, you could say I identified as a musician or, or as a really, as someone who, for whom music was a really important, really big activity in my life. Which instrument? Piano. Oh, so you, okay. So you stayed with piano. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and in fact, I I had an experience of of sort of beginning high school. Whereas the the previous couple of years, I'd sort of given up on the piano and and decided I wasn't enjoying lessons that much and and uh, and didn't really like practicing and didn't didn't really care for it. So so I dropped it. But then got into high school and realized that. Um, I was actually pretty good at this, you know, not, not necessarily in comparison to everyone else around me, but, but that was sort of informational to me that, that really gave me a feeling of like, wow, I've really got uh, a foot in the door in this music thing and, and I really like it and I know a lot about it. So it might be worth building on. So I sort of got back into it. What kind in high of high school, what kind of classes did, because I, I taught at um, some music schools in Sydney and I was just struck uh, by how wonderful the programs were. I mean, at, at one of the schools I was teaching at, they had music theory. Um, they had a whole arc of lessons, uh, a whole curriculum built from year seven to 12, um, where from my own experience, you know, I, I think I started in the sixth grade in the U.S. And so that's the last year of elementary school. And then I went seven to nine as in middle school. And then that's that was a new teacher. That was fine. But then years 10, 11, 12, and then it was a different teacher. And, you know, it, so it wasn't like a cohesive program. Uh, and I, it's not really my place to debate which is better, but I was sort of struck with the planning and the amount of classes. And again, the music theory, composition, all of these things that I didn't study until I was, you know, first year in university. Was 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 your school like that as well? Uh, yeah, yeah, sort of. Uh yeah, um, most most well, there there is, as you said, a, a, a curriculum, a, a continuous curriculum from for we use the word mandatory, so mandatory study of music in years seven and eight, mm -hmm. which in Australia, as you know, is the first two years of high school, uh, and that's uh, there's a mandatory however many hours, hundred hours or something like that in years seven and eight, and then it becomes optional after that, uh, and it's and it's supposedly mandatory in in primary school as well uh which is kindergarten to year six mm. and although there's you know enormous variability in in how that's actually delivered in in primary school so so yeah you're right the curriculum is interesting it's it's a pretty broad sort of curriculum in in classroom music and as part of um a, as part of you know music as a mainstream school subject 
It involves uh, performance, uh, a strand of performance, and it could be, depends on the school, but it could be learning on an instrument or playing an ensemble or, or whatever it is. Uh, it, it involves also listening, which sort of broadly connected, I suppose, to musicology mm. uh, and, and oral skills and things like that. Uh, and, uh, and, and a strand of composing as well. They're the sort of main three chunks. And, and, and I guess the curriculum is more or less divided into those three activities relatively evenly. So it's sort of broad. When I, I remember when I used to speak to people in the States about um, when I was doing my PhD, they, about the, the different types of curriculums in different countries, uh, the, the match for them was sort of like class, sort of uh, what they would call uh, general music. Mm-hmm. But it's a little more that it's a little bit different from general music as well, because it really does have quite an emphasis on the performance stuff. What, so what kind of yeah. ensembles were you involved with? Uh, in school, we had a, a sort of a, a constantly fledgling uh, wind band. Mm-hmm. I guess you would call it. Um, it's two at some point. Uh, there was a bit of a there was quite a bit of teacher turnover and um, and the the department the music department wasn't really large enough to have more than a, te- a music teacher or two at any given time. Uh, and so I think you know from memory when I got into school there was there were there was a principal who was particularly enthusiastic for this music program and a music teacher who was really keen. And both of those had just uh, left within a year because that, well, just that's what they were doing. And then, uh, so there was a bit of disruption there and, and as often happens in schools, uh, you know, there was, there was a varying quality from all the way through. So you were playing piano in the wind band? Yeah, yeah, I would do this thing of um, of f- filling in gaps ah, or right. um, okay. or filling in harmonies or picking That's up. That's cool. Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, I mean, for <laughs> yeah. for someone to learn more about music, I mean, you're 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 essentially analyzing the score, right, at a young age. Yeah, yeah, it did involve quite a bit of that. Yeah, for sure. Did you do any jazz? Um, I, I did. Yeah, I did, I did jazz in the in the broader sense of the the word. Yeah, but like I was in a stage band. Okay, I guess you'd call it a, like a community um, stage stage band type situation, like a like a big band. Cool, and that was fun. Uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed I enjoyed that a lot. Were you also doing solo work? Were you Were you doing um i guess we should talk about it because we we we, uh, you talk about it in the paper maybe you can give a brief uh background or explanation of the australian music examinations board were you involved in that were you were you following the grades of that yeah i was yeah i i uh yeah yeah so when you say solo work that's about the extent of it just just doing that (laughs) learning learning piano and learning classical piano in a studio and and going off every year or so to to do these um, examinations, yeah. So, so the Australian Music Examinations Board is very much like um, it's modelled on the similar examination systems in the UK mm-hmm. and I guess most, I guess the Commonwealth countries. Um, it seems to have seems to have spread to. So, so the, in the UK, it's known as the uh, there are two. There's the Associated Board of oh. I can't think of the acronym right now, but there's the associated board, so-called associated board, and the Trinity College system. Right, right. So Trinity College London. So, so there. Um, anyway, it, the the point of them is that there's this sort of sequenced uh, curriculum, if you like, and so each each grade level has specified that you would do certain kinds of repertoire. So you might get to say grade four, and you select. Um, you select a piece from, that's either a technical study or a Baroque era uh, piece, and there's an available list of pieces that are considered that particular level. And then you select another one out of the category of classical era, uh, era. then you select another one out of the category of romantic, and then another one out of the category of um, 
modern slash contemporary slash jazz or whatever the whatever the uh, catch-all sort of category is for that. Uh, and then you do a whole lot of technical work in this room with an examiner, and then they would grade you, and that's it. Then you 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 attain the you you have attained that grade level. Uh, so, and I think it's a I think it's a really cool system. Uh, we can go into the the motivation bit about that later on, right. but m- most people might sort of balk at the idea that you've got this system that's defined by examinations and um, and very rigid sequence of curriculum, but my uh, experience of that was a very good one. And, and in fact, my, you know, if I look with a fairly sort of, um, I was going to say objective, but, mm-hmm. but well, if I look at a relatively objective um, view of the data that we have on that, uh, what, what we see is kids are generally pretty motivated in that system. They like it. They enjoy being able to work towards something. Uh, they don't sort of feel overwhelmed with pressure and stress from the examinations. Uh, there are certain factors that will contribute to uh, kids not enjoying that experience, uh, of course. But for the most part, it looks like it, it seems to work pretty well. What's the highest grade? Well, uh, you can go to eighth grade. There's numbered. There's a preliminary and then a grade first or second through to eight. Mm-hmm. And then there are a, a series of sort of uh, diplomas. So... Uh, then you would have what's called the um, associates. I'm taking a moment to recall these. It's, it's been a while since I thought well, about them. I the, guess the, the associate, far, and then there's a fellow. How, how far did you get? Oh, um, I think I got to the eighth or maybe seventh before I went to university. Wow. And then it's once a, I was in university, yeah. I didn't really pursue it anymore because I just figured I am studying piano at university. So. All right, so then let's let's get into your university experience. So then you you decided to study music and uh, in education. So it was more education track, not performance track. It was uh, it was a it's a dual degree. So it was oh, a combined okay. music degree with an education degree. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I see. Okay. Wow. All right. And then so, what what was your experience there? I I see from your resume that. Um, you got an honors. So I guess for people that don't know in Australia and you got an honors one. So if you get an honors, that means you wrote a thesis in your fourth year. You can correct me if I'm wrong. And that actually allows you to skip to a PhD in some cases. Is that true? Uh, more or less. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's what honors is. It's usually, sometimes it's embedded within the structure of the degree program. Mm -hmm. Uh, but often it's an added, year on the end of the degree so in my case it was a fifth year because the combined degree was already four years and uh yeah so it's a it's a focus on research and you usually carry out a research project under supervision uh it's like it's like a miniature phd and and the idea is that it it with a certain class of honors um you will will be admitted to to a PhD. So so there's first there's all these um, silly hierarchies that we we name them after. They're sort of, I, I don't know where they come from, but we call first <laughs> class honors in that 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 sort of uh, um, it's your, your your thesis or your your work across that year will get graded into first class, second class division A, second class division B, uh, or et cetera, et cetera. All right. So can you kind of. T- Walk me through your thought process from from your 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 bachelor's. Were, what, what was your sort of goal when you entered? Were you thinking I'm going to be a teacher of music? Because obviously you're shifting more towards a researcher towards the end if you're going to embark on a thesis. Well, that, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what happened. Um, I'd finished school and wanted to. I guess I wanted to be a music teacher. I. Um, I wasn't really, I wasn't entirely sure in, in school what I wanted to do, uh, but I knew that I was, I, I thought that I was good at music and I knew that I would be good at being a music teacher. And aside from that, there wasn't much, um, the, the sort of advice at that time from school or, or whatever was to sort of follow your, your passions. And I found that a strange 
follow your passions and follow your dreams. And I sort of found that strange advice because I didn't know what they were. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I just relied on information about what I felt that I was good at and what I felt I could do well. And so I thought I would be a music teacher. Mm-hmm. But then what, 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 what changed? Because you, I'm just, I'm trying to fo- follow the, 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 the track of your thinking because you go and you do this. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. I mean, for people that don't know, to get an honors one, um, especially at a school like UNSW, is so difficult. I mean, and there's a reason why. I, I don't think they give so many of those out. So that means you're essentially, you, you essentially are, you're, you submitted a master's quality thesis and you're able to start the PhD. So that means you're, you're, you've established yourself as a sort of an early career researcher. And then you decided to get a master's in education. Eventually, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yep. what can you can you can you walk me through that? So like you finished you finished the honors one, then then you could you could have skipped to the PhD. So what what happened? Yeah, uh, I I well I did skip I did go to the PhD after the after the honors I I did. Um, yeah, so so during that during university, I'd started university with the intention of being a music teacher, mm-hmm. and 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 I was I was pretty good at, at uni. Uh, I I did pretty well in my music subjects, um, to the extent that I didn't, I could sort of attribute to effort. I suppose uh, I had a lot going on. I had a, a busy-ish sort of social life. I was always working between one and three jobs. Wow. Um, I was, you know, I was, I was a busy person <laughs> during university. Uh, I went on a study abroad in my third year of university to the University of Illinois, where I would eventually do my PhD. Oh, okay. uh, so, so university was pretty, um, pretty hectic. I, but but through that process, I guess by the end of it, to, to address your question about the honors and everything, I think by the end of it, I, I was doing my final work placement uh, and was just thinking, you know, this is not, I, I could probably pursue this, but it's somehow it's not, it didn't fit. It didn't feel quite right. And so I just thought, well, I like the idea of going after honors anyway, because because I'd had a bit of research experience. I'd worked for as a research assistant for for one of my supervisors, Emery Schubert, who's who's still in the um, in the music department at UNSW. Mm-hmm. And so I'd had some good experiences uh, doing a bit of research assistant work with him, and I and I loved. In the same time, when I went to Illinois and in through through doing that work. I really discovered the idea of of research and what it means to really systematically look at anything really but obviously music I found particularly interesting and the, and the idea of whether you do experiments and carve people up into different groups and give them different treatments or uh, whether you measure things as they happen in the real world or and then the ways of doing analysis that that really make strong evidence for these claims about what's going on. I found all of that whole world really, uh, really fascinating. And so that was really where I, um, where I found, uh, yeah, found something that I definitely knew. Again, I, I found something that I knew I enjoyed doing and might have been good at it. So after the, after the honors, what did you do? Uh, after the honors, I did my PhD during the honors. Actually, I did. I started my PhD. I was, um, I was about, I guess, uh, about half, I must have been about halfway through it, halfway through my honors year when I traveled, when I went to Illinois and, and um, started my PhD. So I had to finish the honors in my first term, my first semester of doing the PhD, which is pretty, uh, pretty, pretty, pretty crazy year if I think about it. Where does the the other masters fit in though? I guess that's why I got confused. It's it's not linear then. You did no, it like- it's not because I did the PhD. I did masters afterwards. Ah, you could have saved me all this uh, this cognitive load problems if you told me <laughs> that in the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I should have because it, you're right. It's not conventional. Who would do a masters after they do a PhD? It's a terrible idea. I no, I think it's it, cool. No, that's cool. It makes sense now. That's why I was thinking. It's like honors, then you would go to your PhD. So now it kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So after you finished your PhD, then like what you started, you came back to Australia and you, you started working at a university. Yeah. After the PhD, I came back to Australia. We had a lot of unfinished business that the PhD research was in Sydney anyway. So I'd done my two years of, of PhD coursework at Illinois. Okay. Then I returned to Sydney and that's where I spent probably a year or a year and a half or so doing my dissertation research. Um, and then f- finished that off and defended that, then then did this this master's. And the reason we did the master's was because it was the same uh, broader project, if you like. There was, there was a, a large funded project, and we had some unfinished business from that project that, that was created sort of additional studies. And so that's why I did the – that's why I continued with the master's. Okay. All right. That, that all makes sense now. Okay. Sort of. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's cool. Okay. And then for, and then, so you, yeah, so you, you, you became an academic essentially, uh, towards the end of your, your bachelor's degree that became your identity. Oh, geez. That's a, that's a big question. Um, no, I, I don't know that it became my identity. It probably took a long time for that to become something that I fully, really fully embraced. Uh, I knew that I loved doing the research and, and the, um, not necessarily the stats, but the, the, the process, the, the scientific process maybe, um, and the intellectual work and the scholarly work that was, I, I just really enjoy doing that which I guess is true of most um, academics. What, but What do you consider your identity now? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think I said before, I don't know that I really identify as, as anything. Uh, is it more like I don't know a series of, to... of adjectives or values? Because I, could, I guess I could tell my story at some point. I don't, I don't need to do it now. But um, my identity was a professional musician until the age of 26 when I quit. And I think I've been struggling. I, I didn't know it until after reading this paper, but I think I've been struggling with what my identity was from age 26 to 40. And now I, I have a more, I, I think now for some reason, I have a bit of breakthrough with identity, but it's the reason why I asked you that question is I also don't identify myself as a researcher or a teacher. I, I, it's more of a series of, of fundamental principles. I think uh, I, it's more like metaphors, like this works, this doesn't work. Right. It's, and so it's weird. It's like, um, and your paper is really, you know, you talk about identity a lot, especially as, you know, as a correlate to, to motivation and sticking with music. So that is an interesting thing. That's why reading the, like reading the paper today, um, there were so many times it was just like, oh, whoa, oh man, <laughs> it was, it was very, it was very almost a personal thing for me to, to kind of read that. Cause I, I don't know if other yeah. people identify themselves as academics, like, I'm an academic. Like, I guess people do. Um, that's why I was kind of like asking you, peppering you with these questions. Like, <laughs> like was like, oh, your identity shifted, but it didn't. I get, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. If there's something about, um, I, I guess it probably did. I guess it probably did. During that music degree, I, I just realized that I didn't want to be a music teacher, right? So I guess I, you might say I, I identified less with the idea of, of me, Paul Evans, music teacher. That, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, didn't have that. You didn't like, you didn't like imagining the situation where you take, take that business card out of your wallet. You didn't like how it looked. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I didn't imagine that it would be Paul Evans, you know, associate professor of, ed, of education either, but, um, so, so I, yeah, so, so I guess it sort of changed over that time. I mean, you, the story you've just described about yourself is like, I, I mean, I, I use this term again, identify with that uh, <laughs> to some extent as well. I mean, I'm going on 42 and the way you just described your adult life has, has sort of been very much the same as mine. So maybe this is just normal. All right. Well, let's, um, let's jump into the paper. Um, again, this is called Psychology of Music Identity and Practice. The, motiva- the motivational benefits of a long-term musical identity. And you were not exaggerating because this is a 10-year longitudinal study. Um, I guess, can you give a little bit of a background uh, how the paper came to be, the initial stages, with your co-author, Gary McPherson? And if you also wouldn't mind talking about the grant writing process, um, because I know in in the beginning stages of the paper, you talk about there was this initial study 
I think that what you, you did for about a year, I think. Um, and then you, then you moved on to this bigger study. So can you, can you give the background about how this paper came to be? Because at the end of the paper, you, you recognize that you received two grants for this longitudinal study. So I'm just wondering if the grant process was connected to the initial study as well. So if you could. Yeah. Yeah, we can get into the yeah we can get into the grants, but I guess to just explain how the study yeah how how on earth this study came about was we in my dissertation research I had found myself involved in this um, larger funded as you said grant funded project and the the it was Gary McPherson who was my dissertation advisor at Illinois oh, okay. at the time uh, he he was my uh, so he was my supervisor and he held the grant. So uh, the the project was that we'd, or the and the grant, the purpose of the grant was to follow up the participants who had previously been involved in this in this other grant about ten years prior. Mm-hmm. So my my beginning of my dissertation research coincided with with Gary and his team, Jane Davidson. Uh, Jane was the principal or the chief investigator actually at that time. Uh, and she was at that time at the University of Western Australia. And they so they had this project and the main sort of gist of that that grant was to follow up uh, these participants in this study that had occurred 10 years prior and to see what was going on with them and to do a few other you know studies um, on the side that were related to the same ideas. So th- so that was my dissertation bit. I had come into it at that point and been handed a bunch of data from from 10 years prior the the 10 years prior was obviously the time where they they uh and and that was gary mcpherson involved at that time and i think jane davidson had been involved at that time as well and a few phd students and they had done a lot of work with those first three years they mm-hmm. followed the students for those three years they did uh the standardized music tests with them every couple of years they interviewed their parents they looked at the home environment. They counted up how much time the kids practice, depending on who, whether you ask the mother or the kid. They uh, did some quali- a lot of qualitative work there, uh, and there was actually quite a rich variety and 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 range of studies and observations at that time. So it was really cool for me as a PhD student doing my dissertation to take that as a starting point and to look at the potential of what you could do uh, if you could imagine that you would follow all of these children who were sort of seven to nine years old, I guess, and then now it's 10 years later, catch them as they're entering adulthood, find out what happened in the interim, see if there's any connections to be made, and and that was it. That was the sort of very pragmatic approach to what my dissertation research would be. Okay, so just to be clear, so you came in after the first three years, and then seven years went by, and then you applied for a grant to track down the participants from the initial three-year study. The, uh, that's right. So the that's more or less right. So the the study was the original three years. The study was originally only going to be a three-year study. Only going mm-hmm. to be a three-year study it was huge. So they <laughs> they had done that in around I guess ninety-seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was obviously not involved because I was a child myself at that time. Mm-hmm. The, the, by the time my dissertation research came around, that was coinciding with the 10 year mark since these students had begun in this study or since this the study had begun, uh, and, and coincided also with my dissertation advisor, Gary McPherson and, who was to be my master's thesis advisor, Jane Davidson, obtaining a grant for the purposes of following up these students and and other things. Okay. Um, all right. Can you give a little bit of uh, the findings of the the first three studies? Uh, the fir- sorry, the first three year study. So you had these open ended interviews um, where you asked students, you know, before they started uh, their music study how long they would continue um you you tracked the time of practice through parent reports and 
I guess the main finding was again this the, the students who had mentioned this long term commitment. There was a striking result almost immediately, right, of the students who maintained through those three years. That that's right. That was the well. That was the by the time I was doing my dissertation research, that was literature that had been sort of written up four or five years at least prior. So the 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 team who had done that original study had. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Performance, uh, standardized performance tests for, for the for music performance tests on these on these kids for, for three years, talking to their parents, talking to the kids, finding out how much practice they did. And and uh, and really, I guess what they were up to at that time was trying to unpack. Trying to unpack what really contributes to kids learning music well and enjoying it. So, and and no one in music had really thought about that a whole lot before. And I think that was a big contribution that Gary had made at that time. And uh, and so, I think well, that that's really sort of- that's really the missing link, right? Because and you talk about it in the paper. So you know, there's a correlate between achievement and the quality and quantity of practice. I think everybody knows that. But then the missing link is. Well, where does motivation fit in to keep someone continuing to do quality and quantity of practice over the amount of time it takes to become a professional musician? And then like in the paper, you're talking about how, you know, a lot of the the previous research was sort of focusing on um, sort of trait skills that people might have. Like someone is just innate or fixed traits. You talked about like instead of these like psychological factors or social or cognitive factors. So that's it's, right. it's cool. Yeah. It's cool that your I guess your your PhD advisor. Um, so th- th- that's a great question, right? It's like it's weird because I never even thought about that, and I like live this life. That's like a really important. <laughs> you you question. never thought about the your beliefs about ability. No, no, I never thought about the 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 secret ingredient, the motivation. Like I knew to be a to be a great player, you needed to practice smart and you needed to practice like in the beginning they say oh you just got to practice a lot and then as you get older you realize oh you got to practice smart you got to practice efficiently you have to you know you have to manage your time you have to do lots of stuff you need a good teacher all this stuff but as far Mm -hmm. as sort of the long-term commitment it's like i just i never thought about like oh what's the motivation that could keep somebody going through that and it seems like that was the main impetus for this study um, where maybe other people thought, oh, just some people are, I don't know, built that way, or I don't know. I never thought about that, why someone right. would continue. Yeah, I think this whole area of research was responding in, in and if we, you know, I remember going and looking looking back over the music ed research that had happened in the 80s and the 90s, and it was a, and and then by the time that I got there, it was a time where the yeah research had really shifted and spent a good amount of time in this new territory of saying well okay you can be you can be really talented uh, and you can have this so-called natural talent from from music okay fine some people are just going to be brilliant but aside from that what what is explaining why people stick with it and why people get good and and all of that now the, and it was that era of research where the deliberate practice uh, sort of theory not so much a theory as a a, well idea uh came came out the idea that you would that the best explanation for expertise for your accumulation of knowledge or expertise or performance would be uh, attributable to the amount of practice that you had done the amount of deliberate practice that you'd done not just the amount of practice because as you said the Practice needs to be really strategic. It needs to be smart practice. You need to plan it. You need to do all of that stuff. So, so that was the that was the climate was hunting around to try and find these other explanations. The that whole deliberate practice thing has since swung around in a different direction. There's a different camps of people now who say, well, actually, it doesn't really explain a whole lot, and 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 in a way, gone back to saying, well, it's look look at this contribution of of in innate talent or, or whatever it is. So, uh, mm. so there are different views on that now, but, but that was the point of the time to try and say, well, um, and, and look at the social factors as well, you know? So if you have a, a really high quality instrumental music program, then, 
if you if you have an interest in music, then it's probably going to have a better chance at flourishing and thriving in that environment than than if you don't have such a, a program available to you. So uh, it seems so obvious to us talking about this now, but I think at the time uh, it was, you know, it, it was debated about whether whether this should be um, w- whether music should just be uh, available to people who are talented or or uh, or or not. All right, so let's get into the the discussion. So uh, the main finding was the students that had established or communicated a long term commitment to music um, by far exceeded the length of time continuing than those who didn't. Um, and I just got to read something from the paper, which was really interesting. You said. One straightforward explanation might be that this result may represent a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy on the part of the children, that they were able to foresee what they would be doing as an adult based on how much they liked their prospective instrument or how talented they thought they might be at playing it. However, we believe that such an interpretation is simplistic. Instead, we explore the possibility that what was initially labeled as commitment actually reflects something much richer, a contextualized and well-developed sense of personal identity that the children were able to readily draw upon when asked about their future music making. Um, and then you go in to talk about the, the, the ways that someone might form this long-term identity. And you also highlight that children can create, are able to understand an identity as, as early as like from age five or something, five to seven. Um, this is all fascinating yeah. to me. I, I found it fascinating too, which is why uh, what which is why I wrote about it. And I guess that that speaks to the the approach of this paper. Really, it was as I said, it was it's very pragmatic, and it says it takes. And you wouldn't normally take this approach with sort of scientific research, if you like, but it's it says well we got this data from 10 years ago and and we can find out what the kids are doing now and 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 try and get a retrospective sense of what happened in the in the interim if you were to design a study from the ground up you wouldn't design it that way Mm -hmm. but but when you have an opportunity to look back and and do these things then then there are you know certain things that you can find so i think i think this study really is very much I, I would definitely regard it as a very exploratory study and I would regard it as um, and and a lot of what we you know wrote about in the discussion and everything is is very speculative too uh, which isn't to say that it's invalid but because because you know as you said I, I liked uh, in um, uh, exploring these uh, interesting ideas but I think that's one of them it, it the the idea that you could articulate an identity from from an early age is accurate. You know, kids from sort of five or six can describe things that they like, for example, or, or, uh, or not necessarily a favorite color, but something a bit more elaborate than that. But, but kids are able to do that. And then obviously by the time you get to adolescence, you're, uh, you get more nuanced in the way that you can describe your, your self schema. And that's what adolescence largely is. It's finding your, finding your place and your independence from your parents and your place in the social world. So kids, so adolescents are much more able to describe their identity and say, Oh, you know, I'm usually shy when I'm around adults, like my parents or my parents' friends. But when I'm with my, my own friends, then I'm much more outgoing and risk taking or, or whatever it is. So it it becomes much more nuanced. And you highlighted some, you know, some, some interesting things that are, that are, you know, intuitive as far as, how can a child form this identity or how can a child make this long-term commitment or envision themselves, you know, envision their future selves. And you talked about how family, you know, family influences and, you know, they were exposed to music, the children that were a part of these, you know, very vibrant musical communities, they could envision it, you know, they're exposed to it. So that's very intuitive, right? And that, that could be a metaphor for lots of things, if it's sports or, or anything really. Um, you also gave the anecdote of that, that, child who started playing the clarinet i think and he wasn't in an enriched school and he was learning classical music he was learning classical music and he had no frame of reference for it um and he just quit right just made no sense to him and then 10 years later he couldn't even remember what instrument he had played (laughs) yeah that's yeah exactly yeah so little relevance to to that person's life that uh that 
yeah, how are you gonna <laughs> how are you gonna be able to identify with that? I think that's true. I think the thing about the culture was. Um, or the culture of the school was really more a thing about the, like you said, some schools have a, some schools have better music programs than others. So some, some might have um, a long tradition, a teacher who's been there for a good few years, uh, students coming through who had started in whatever year and, and a pipeline of students coming through this extracurricular or curricular music program, whatever it is. Uh, and that's, and the, the instruments are funded by the school or maybe it's a, socioeconomic profile of the school such that it you know the parents are no have no problem funding the instruments or, or whatever and then contrast that with another school which you know the only instrument is a dusty old rust rusted um you know trumpet in the storeroom and no one knows how to use it uh there's a teacher who comes in once a week but then he gave up and then another teacher came in um for a little bit but she did something else with the band and then the next year, only four kids joined the program. You know, you know. So you can see that the the comparison I'm trying to make is is between schools that have a highly active music program and schools that don't. And that's true of, like you said, you gave the example of sports as well. Um, you know, facilities or sporting teams and and good coaches or whatever would be um, would be a comparison. And I guess it's true of any other subject, whether it's curricular or extracurricular. Well, that's the huge thing I'm facing now with my um, Japanese students who are studying English. I, I mostly teach first and second year compulsory um, English uh, classes. And I don't know if it's the fact that Japan is becoming more iso isolationist. Even before COVID, uh, students are less interested in study abroad programs. Those numbers are decreasing. Um, a lot of these students... Yeah, like I said, they don't have they don't have a desire to travel. They're not running into a lot of foreigners that often. Um, what's the motivation for studying English? They can't envision their future self using it. I mean, we can we can put some carrots on strings, like, hey, you know, here are some stats where if you learn English, your salary will increase over time. <clears throat> but that's not enough. I mean, like that's not enough to to keep someone you know motivated. I mean, learning a language is almost the same thing. It just takes a huge amount of time and commitment and you know lot, lots of motivational factors so I yeah mean, I like recently, identity and practice <laughs> i was it's, it's true they're very similar areas in that way i was talking to um a woman uh who teaches at the university of london and she's been doing this program recently with her students which i think is a great idea where i think she it's like her first year japanese students in england they have to do a skype call with japanese students you know in japan and they yeah. have to speak in Japanese. And I was like, oh, that's perfect. It's like, I need to start doing, I need to do, start doing stuff like that. Um, we can't just put stats on the board and say, hey, over time, your salary is going to increase. Like it just, <laughs> it's just, it's just not, it's just not going to work. It's got to, it's got to hit them in the face. They have to interact with the language, right? They have to, or whatever it is, right? They have to, they have to see how it can be, how it can influence their life. They can't just, right? It's not enough. I, I, I just, agree. Yeah. And that's, that, that's where the, yeah, motivation for learning a language is actually a really interesting area. In some ways, it's like motivation for anything, but there's something about language that, and and maybe it has something to do with the music motivation as well, which is just sort of a little different. I guess to, to go back to the point about identity is that in your language example and in this music example, we impose this construct of identity on on the children's responses to an answer that they gave uh, early on in the research, which was, so how long do you think you'll be doing this for? Uh, mm. Or maybe it was a series of questions. I can't recall. Uh, at the time, the researchers coded them into these various categories of, you know, short, medium, and long term. So, you know, how mm. long do you think you'll be playing the music for? You know, is it going to be until the end of the school year or this week? Or or, or are you going to be forever a, a clarinetist now or, or whatever it was? So, so th those kinds of questions. Looking back on it, and 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 again, this is the this is the exploratory data analysis part. We sort of looked at the data and then imposed this uh, idea upon it, which is why I think, which is a long shot, and also why you'd want a study like this to be sort of replicated and and look at what's going on in in more nuanced um, detail. But but that's what we were up to. We were saying, well, 
if the if the kids who'd answered that question in a particular way held on to their music playing for much longer and they did better over time, well, then there must be something going on and maybe it's something to do with maybe they just from that moment they think of themselves as a musician. They'd seen a few musicians around. They liked the idea of doing that. Uh, and so they thought, yeah, I could I could see myself as, as doing that, whereas the ones who didn't have the music program around, you, you can't articulate something like that. Uh, you can't say I want to be a clarinetist. You've never seen a clarinet before. You don't know what a clarinetist is. You don't know what music is, the uh, music notation is. You've never been to a classical music concert. So, of course, you're not going to be able to... Uh, um, articulate a longer term view you might you might come to enjoy it if you did happen to become involved in music programs and and whatever but uh, but it's difficult to articulate it from the beginning the kind of thing that you're talking about in relation to the language is is about how where your motivation comes from mm. and it's uh, that's the kind of thing that I've been more interested in 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 the in recent years in in, both, in music, in university students doing music, and in, in school students more generally as well, actually. Uh, and that uses a lot of, uh, that really uses self-determination theory as a framework, uh, which is a theory of motivation uh, are based on, well, a few different things. Your fulfillment of, of these basic psychological needs, the things that you, the psychological experiences that you need to grow and thrive and learn and flourish in the social world. And uh, and related to that, the sort of the location of your motivation, where it comes, where where uh, it can be coming from a place that is part, that is an expression of you. So, so, so in other words, I I want to do something. I feel volitional, and I I have an interest in in doing this thing, and it feels enjoyable to me. All the way through a range of different types of motivations from, oh, I can see that this is relatively important to me, so I'll probably pursue that. Although, and then further along to say, well, oh, I'm only doing this because uh, I'd sort of feel bad if I didn't practice this week or, or, you know, I feel like I sort of feel like I should pursue this university degree because in, instead of that other one. Uh, and then all the way through to really highly pressuring external forces like, I'm only doing this university degree for the money or or mm. I, I really feel pressured by my family into this choice of career or or whatever it is. So that's the so that's a, a long answer to a short question, but the uh, there are sort of two related issues there. One is the the idea of who who I am and that in relation to what I'm doing. And then the other is where my motivation for this activity is coming from. Is it coming from within me and something that I have interest and volition and that I want to do, or is it coming from something more, more external? Well, I guess I kind of, I kind of mentioned it before we started recording. I, I wanted to give my anecdote of why this, this paper was kind of powerful for me is, um, yeah, tell so me about that. When I was a child, I was exposed to high quality music in the Washington DC area. And I had the opportunity to, to hear and to play with this, really great trumpet teacher in Washington, D.C., who I ended up studying with um, at a young age. And, uh, you know, early on, I thought, oh, I want to be a professional trumpet player. That was that was my goal. I could see it clearly. I could see this person. I, I met with this person. I studied with this person. I knew the person's job. We played together sometimes. I could see his concerts. Like, it was it was all clear. I And not only that, I, I could see who his friends were, and I saw how he interacted, and I thought his job was so cool, and it looked like fun, and and I, and it was like, and then it, so there's motivation and then there's identity. Right. And then I had some injury. I, I think I was quite good. Uh, maybe the, the big fish in the small pond kind of thing. I was quite good and I excelled. Uh, but then I had a few injuries towards the end of high school and I had to change my embouchure and it was just, mm. and I got to, I mean, I think there were some high points, you know, at times, but I would say generally speaking from 17 to 25 was, it felt like an upward battle. And again, there were some high times and there's some breakthroughs and there was times, but no, through, through all the hard times, I just, I kept going because my identity was, you know, professional trumpet player, musician. Like I remember thinking when I was reading this paper, I remember thinking I'd go to parties and stuff and, and like girls would ask me like, what, like, what, what do you do? Or what do you study? And I would say like, I'm a musician. And I, I hadn't thought about that in years. 
And the reaction was always like positive. Like it was like, oh, really? That's cool. It's like, yeah, it is cool. It is. It's a, it's a pretty good party <laughs> trick to be able to say that. <laughs> so anyway. It, it um, just definitely gets you uh, <laughs> places. Yeah. Uh, so so anyway, uh, I, ups and downs, ups and downs. And then I was back in D.C. and I was actually uh, auditioning for um, some gigs and I was, again, I was back in that circle where I was comfortable with and I was studying with these people and they were preparing for me for the auditions. And then I had this, uh, the last audition I took, I didn't get out of the first round and I was really disappointed. Um, but the thing that the worst part of it was, was they actually didn't accept anyone that year. So I think it was like 85 people auditioned. I didn't get past the first round, which was really frustrating, but then they didn't take anyone. And I'd spent like a year just practicing for this audition, right? And then uh, an opportunity came up to do some traveling. And I was like, I just need to clear my head for, I just need to clear up my head for, for a while. And my trumpet teacher at the time was like, you need to bring your trumpet with you. I was like, what? He's like, he's like, you can't take 10 days off. You have to, I was like, and I think at that point, I just thought, you know what? That's it. I'm done with this. And then, um, and I left for like 10 days and I, and I was traveling and then that, that trip turned into like six months. And then I, I, I got my best friend in college to sell my trumpets. Um, cause I knew like, I, I just thought that if I was going to quit, I'd have to do it like that. Cause I thought if I come back home, it would, it's just, I just, I just get, I'd slip back into the old shoes of the identity and like my, my parents wouldn't let me quit. Like, oh, think of all the time you spend into it, like too late to quit now. But I had made the decision. So I got my friend, uh, Kelly, and who's a, who's actually a professional trumpet player now. Um, and then he, I think he drove from New York, he got my trumpets and he sold them on eBay and he sent me the money. And he said, he said it was this really awkward exchange with, with my mother. <laughs> right. my, my my mother refused to sell uh to give him the b flat trumpet so it was like my piccolo my e flat my c <laughs> trumpet he took all those he sold them on ebay sent me the money um but she refused to sell the b flat and i'm glad she didn't because i still have the b flat and then when i moved to sydney you know i was like teaching english and then i got kind of sick of it and then i kind of got back into it as a teacher and i was teaching yeah. trumpet yeah. and i was doing some gigs but at that point, my identity was not musician anymore, right? Like it had shifted. Like uh, it was a great job and I, and I was having fun and I could impart some knowledge. But yes. I just remember thinking like that was, that was like that big shift where it's like, unless, I won't be able to quit unless I quit from like, I don't know, across the ocean. <laughs> so it was just, it was wild. All these memories kind of flooded back when I, and I, and again, the main point of that story was um, the power of the identity kept me almost not only kept me going it would not allow me to quit which maybe i should have quit earlier i don't i don't know yeah well you have to you have to form a, a view about uh what what you're going to do there are yeah there's a few different sort of if you look at the sort of psychological theories about identity there's there's and i you know obviously i dabbled in some of them for for this paper but um and and since then for different reasons as well but if you look at the um, different frameworks, that most of them include this. Most of them sort of seem to agree on this idea that you have this schema understanding of yourself. You know, I I have this schema of Paul Evans. It it consists of um, the kinds of values that I have, the things that I like doing, the kind of profession that I have, um, whatever whatever it might be. And it's that content that con the contents of that enable you to interact with with other people and and sort of allow you to pursue goals in relation to to um, enacting that identity and 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 all of that sort of thing. Uh, I feel like I have trouble explain, <laughs> explaining these things because I, I don't I don't usually um, it's not my bread and butter these days, but, uh, but anyway, that's the, that's the thing that is, seems to be common to those, those theories. And what you've explained is something where that does guide you, but it, it is, um, also, uh, adaptable or it's, or it's flexible, right? So in the pursuit of other interests or traveling around the world or finding some other thing that you enjoy doing, you are allowing yourself to say, well, I can let go of that other thing and that that's fine. Maybe I will just change my identity, become something else. That seems to be pretty adaptive to me. 
And I can think of times in my life where that's happened to me also. Some, sometimes it's not. Some people have uh, a real hard time letting go of, of, of those sorts of things. If they, um, I don't know if you remember the film Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah. Remember One of my um, what's his name? Movies. Uncle, uh, Uncle, Uncle Rico. Uncle Rico. Look at his identity. He's a football player. Bet he you really helped. Football over those mountains. Yeah. <laughs> he makes all the videos of him just pretending to dodge a tackles or whatever he's doing. I don't even know. And, uh, so he, that's not adaptive for that guy. He's really clinging on to this this old dream. He, oh, he could have made it into the um, into the whatever league it's called that well, he no, the best the best part of the story is he was the backup he wasn't even playing he wasn't even starting he's <laughs> like if, if i would have got in there i would i would have i would have made states it's like he, he, he's so deluded he he wasn't even the starter yeah that's right yeah so a good example of how this can really go off the rails oh that's funny yeah, and again, I guess bringing bringing it back to what I was saying before, it's like I, you know, the idea of grit, like you know, you know, doing something long term consistently, like that's a truth in life. So I don't know if that was my identity early on, but I think going through that process of learning to play the trumpet and and you you see the long term view, like now it's like that's part of my identity now, um, just because I know it works, and so it's like oh, I can I can stick with something like I. Some people will start stuff and they won't finish it. I'll if I start something, I'm gonna finish it. Like I'm not, I'm gonna do it the right way. Like that's part of my identity, but that wasn't necessarily my identity when I started music. I think it was more like my identities now is more based on experience than yeah. And and I think what I think a lot of it might not even be. Maybe it is related to identity, but a lot of it in in learning music, you learn. You, you pick up a few things and, and maybe you, you can pick these things up from doing other activities, but music is a really good way of doing them. One is the learning how, um, le- almost like getting an insight into learning itself to understand mm. that it, it, you, if you're going to practice, if you're a, a, a school kid, for example, and you practice four times in a week for 20 minutes each, that's going to be way superior to practicing for the same amount of time, an hour and 20 minutes on a Saturday morning right. once. The, mm-hmm. the, the frequency of practice is going to have such a huge um, impact on your developing ability. And then, you know, you would know that as a trumpet player, even just physically, if you don't pick up a trumpet for a week, well, then you can't produce, if you're a very, if you're a beginning trumpet player, yeah. There's no point going a week without picking up the trumpet because your embouchure, you know, the muscles around your lips and everything are just going to, you're not going to be able to produce the tone again. And you're sort of back at, um, back at, what's the expression? Back, back to Square the one. beginning. Yeah. yeah. So, so you learn about that stuff. You learn about the relationship between that and your long-term goals. You know, you might be preparing a particular concert piece and that concert is in four months and you're leading up to that. You learn about the performance and managing the nerves. You learn about um, you learn about relating with a teacher. You learn how to regulate your own learning because all that practice happens on your own, and you only mm. sort of drop in and see your teacher once a week. So you have to manage your own. You have to have to do a lot of managing your own practice. And all these things, by the way, are very similar for language learning. Right. Yeah. Like these. There's these language schools all throughout Japan, like for profit. And these parents are just delusional because, you know, they get, they pressure these institutions that there's this phrase in Japanese, peta peta, which means like you're totally fluent. And they're, they're, they're going for like one lesson a week. And then after six <laughs> weeks, they're saying, why isn't my, why isn't my child fluent? And, you know, it's like, well, you're, huh? <laughs> what? Well, one hour per week? I mean, and you're living in Japan. I mean, how, you know, when he, when he, he or she goes home, they're not, they're, they're, there's no English in the house. There's no English in society. Like, how can you expect, like, the expectations? In some ways, learning a language might be more difficult than learning music. I mean, I think they're, they're, sim- I, I, I don't know. It's, it, there's a lot of complicated things with, with learning a language, I think, but, um, yeah, it's there's a, a big motivational need. part, which is, you know, going back to that framework before of something coming from from within your volition and your will and having mm. and having something outside pressuring it, 
and all of the things in between. I think with music, you need to you need to have a bit of a long term identified thing of where you're going to go because no one enjoys practicing scales and technical work and and even repertoire. It's not it's not if you ask a lot of musicians, they'll say they enjoy their practice, and I think they probably do mildly enjoy their practice. But it's like people who it's like runners, you know, people who enjoy running, uh, you know, every now and then a few k's or something. They say they, I don't think they, they, they say they enjoy it. I don't think they really mean they literally enjoy the running. It's hard work and you get puffed and, and whatever. You enjoy the whole, the overall experience. You feel good afterwards. Physically, you feel mm. good. Um, you, you, you developed your running skill. You might've improved your ability or you might've felt that you run, your technique was good or, or whatever. I'm trying not to push the analogy too far, but, um, but, but I think that there's a lot about music that are similar. If your if your motivation is more like, well, I, okay, I don't want to practice right now. It's not going to be the activity that's going to be the most thrilling thing that I could do with this evening, but I'm going to practice for half an hour because I've got a concert coming up in a few weeks. We've got a rehearsal tomorrow with my mates and I don't want to let them down. I want to be well prepared for that. And so this is going to, and I can't wait to have that concert. And if we do a really good job at that concert in a few weeks, that's going to be really uh, that's going to really make me feel good and everyone's going to have a great time. And so I, I, I need, so I, I better practice. I better get stuck into it. And then the practice is not so bad. It's fine with, with language. It's hard to have the, that hierarchy, isn't it? It's hard to have the longer term, especially with the circumstances you described. Maybe there's no me- media. I uh, don't know what, what is part of the, um, you know, the culture of the Japanese children that you're talking about, but if there's if there's no sort of English media, then that might not be they they can't it's that thing of being able to see it and identify with it. Uh, if there's no you know they're not going to travel they're not all going to travel to uh, Australia or or America or whatever it is the following year. So there's no need to to learn the language. There's no there's no sort of rationale guiding their guiding this very this activity which is very demanding. You need high frequency. You need a lot of motivation, and so. When you don't have any identity, what's the what's the point of going to all that effort? Well, and then the other thing, like I mean, related languages are probably easier, um, but you have a language like English and Japanese where we have this cultural thing. There, there's these famous quotes from people. Um, well, that, that that pops up in research sometimes too. It's like I can't be good in English. I'm Japanese, <laughs> and in some ways, I see what they're saying. Because the, even just yeah, the cultural of rules of speaking, um, it is it is. I almost have to adapt a different personality when I speak Japanese. Like it's, you do have to be more submissive, and everything's implied. And it's like, what's the subject? And like, it's like, it's like you know, it's there's. I don't know. It's yeah. I, I, I think that, I, I find. Um, I I visited Japan once for a very short time for a conference, um, oh. and. And yeah, you sort of obviously pick up on these these cultural differences. It's not something that matches my uh, readily matches my personality, I suppose. So I, I find it uh, dif- difficult to sort of you know try bend over backwards trying to trying to slot into that. Uh, I, fa- I found that to be a difficult um, experience. But it's but it's funny that you say the. Um, yeah, that uh, how could I? What was it? How could I learn English well if I'm a Japanese? How can I be? How can I become good at English? I'm Japanese. Yeah, yeah. The technical, the content of learning such a different language is that's part of it, right? I, although it's the same as um, uh, learning something. You know, it's the same as learning calculus or saying I'm going to, um, I don't know, gymnastics. Anything in, in a way. Uh, maybe there's something more personal or more more self-relevant about language because it literally is the the way that you speak and express your yourself this this self schema that you have in you. It's literally the way that you enact yourself in the social world. And I think music is a bit like that too. So maybe there's maybe that's uh, another factor. Yeah. Um, well, maybe like last thing for me, uh, just uh, my reflecting on your paper. This is what I, I thought about myself. Um, I was intrinsically motivated. If we're talking about self-determination theory, I was, intri- I was intrinsically motivated um, to keep playing music and to pursue it. But I was, extre- I was extrinsically motivated uh, not to quit. 
And as far yeah. as language language learning, I'm only extrinsically motivated. Like I, I'm, I'm aware of that now. Um, so it's interesting to sort of like think of this is really powerful stuff. When you if you really read this stuff and you and you read the self determination theory stuff and identity stuff and you actually if you take some time and you talk to you know if you talk to a young person like get off your phone read a book sit in a dark room and think about this stuff um it's pretty powerful it's pretty interesting i i find i find it yeah i, I find it interesting i i'm really um glad uh and grateful and lucky to be in a place and in a job now where it's most of my workers most of my researchers studying the dynamics of these these things. Uh, and so, yeah, so I enjoy doing that. The point that you've made about motivation is absolutely, absolutely right. And the self-determination continuum, it's tempting to say, well, oh, I'm intrinsically motivated for this, or I'm extrinsically motivated for that. In reality, we all have many different types of motivations operating at the same time. Mm. The, I gave the example of someone doing music, they have a sort of this identified motivation of, of understanding how important the practice is for some other activity. They also have some intrinsic motivation, maybe a little bit, they might enjoy that last um, run through of whatever piece it is that they're preparing in the practice session, they might enjoy that, but largely they feel like it's a chore, who knows? Uh, I mean, this is just an example. Uh, they, they might also be avoiding a bit of guilt if they didn't practice, there might be that motivation going on. They might also feel a bit of pressure. You know, when I go to work, for example, I, I just said how lucky and grateful I was to be working in my research and, and to have the job that I do. But on any given day at work, I'm motivated also by all sorts of things, pressures to, to, to publish and to publish in particular places and all those extrinsic things. Uh, I, I have obviously the intrinsic interest in finding more about motivation and how it operates in educational settings and in music. Uh, and, and I have motivation for working with people. I've got, you know, so many fantastic colleagues that I work with at UNSW and and all over the world. So I enjoy those interactions as well. And so, yeah, so all of us have, have simultaneously different uh, types of motivating motivations operating on us for different activities yeah, in, different, in, in whatever context we find ourselves yeah, in. Sliding scales over time, right? Different intensities. It's uh, very, very cool. Um, all right. Well, I don't want to take up uh, more of your time. I try to keep these around an hour. I think we we hit uh, we hit everything. Again, if people would like to read the paper, uh, let me just scroll back up to the top here. Uh, the name of the paper is Psychology of Music Identity and Practice, The Motivational Benefits of a Long-Term Musical Identity. I'm more jealous of you than any other academic I've talked to. Thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Uh, <laughs> that's very kind of you, Jonathan. Uh, we did talk about all sorts of things today about research and ourselves, and it's been great great talking to you and getting to know you a bit. So, so thank you. Lost in Citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com, where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five-minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues. Then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is, if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.